Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent. I'm joined by the writer Winnie M. Lee, whose book Complicit is just out, a novel about power, privilege, and justice in the US filmmaking industry at the time of the Me Too movement. It follows Winnie's first novel, Dark Chapter, a fictionalised retelling of her own sexual assault. In 2008, she was raped while hiking outside Belfast. Winnie was 29. Her attacker was 15. The novel is loosely based on some of her real-life experience. Half of the book is written from the perspective of the victim, the other half from the perpetrator, Winnie. Welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Firstly, congratulations on the publication of Complicit. Both that book, Winnie, and your first explore sexual assault. In Complicit, the rapist is a wealthy, powerful Hollywood film producer. And in Dark Chapter, he's an underage Irish traveller. They couldn't be more different, yet of course... There are common notes of power and violence and justice. And I know you call yourself an activist as, as well as an author. Was this intentional then, showing in your two books the universality of sexual assault and how it cuts across lines? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I suppose as an activist, that would be one of the key messages I'm trying to get out there, um, which is that you know, sexual assault can happen to anyone, right? And it very much happened to me when I was least expecting it. I was out for a walk on my own in the middle of the day. Um, and I traveled for 29 years on my own as a woman to lots of different countries. Um, and then suddenly I was literally crossed paths with this individual. And then I became the victim of sexual violence. I think that the randomness with which it can happen, but then also kind of the prevalence of it, because since then, obviously, I've met so many other women and men um, and heard their stories and realized that you know those statistics are true. You do have that many, you know, one in four, one in five women, as they often say, will experience sexual violence in their lives. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to look at the prevalence of it, but then also the diversity of, of perpetrators out there. Um, and for sure, having a perpetrator and complicit who is completely different miles away and in completely different worlds from the perpetrator in Dark Chapter was, was a deliberate choice, yeah. And Complicit is a novel that also shows your intimate knowledge of the movie industry, which you used to work in, both as a film producer and a festival programmer. And your work's taken you from the US to the UK, Ireland, Qatar, and more, I'm sure. Although Complicit is set in New York and LA, did you find stories material wherever you worked? Yeah, I mean, I never actually worked in New York or LA in film, to be honest. So I grew up outside of New York and Los Angeles is where my parents now live and they've lived there for 20 years. So they're both cities that I know quite well just from personal experience but strangely enough, cities have never worked in, right? So my experience working was primarily in London in the film industry and then later Qatar. But um, yeah, a lot of, so it's almost like I've transplanted my film experience, my professional experience from one city into those two cities, partly because New York and Los Angeles are so iconic in the public imagination, but also very iconic and, and very important cities in the filmmaking world as well. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting, and I guess fiction writers do that. You know, we kind of take bits from our own 
lives and kind of meld them together into hopefully a more kind of seamless whole. Um, But yeah, I really wanted to also capture what New York City was like, the physical environment, and try to capture what how Los Angeles can be such a completely different, weird physical environment for, for an East Coaster coming from the United States. I want to talk about perspective. When you first envisioned Dark Chapter, were you always going to write both sides of the story from the perspective of the victim and from the perspective of the perpetrator? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was kind of the heart of Dark Chapter. I mean, I knew from the beginning that it was always going to be those two perspectives um, intertwined um, because otherwise I probably wouldn't have written the book. I mean, I, my assault took place um, in 2008 when I was 29. Um, So almost a few weeks after the assault, I, I wrote a few paragraphs, right. Um, Which actually I think I sent you at the time because we were friends. Right. Um, And I wrote a few paragraphs, which um, just sort of came out of the blue from nowhere. And they were written from the point of view of the victim, but almost as if it was years later and she was looking back on the moments right before the assault, right? And it's strange to think that I wrote those paragraphs then when it was actually only a few weeks after the assault, but I suppose in my mind, in trying to deal with the trauma, I was trying to envision a time in the future where I could look back on it, you know, and have that sort of temporal distance. Um, So... I and and a lot of it was about kind of the suspense or the wish the the sense of not knowing what I was walking into right um so those few paragraphs now form the prologue of dark chapter and and those were always and that was really kind of what made me realize oh no I can turn this into material not in a cynical sense but just you know the, the process of turning this lived experience of trauma into material for a novel is I wouldn't say it's part of the healing process, but that is part of the process of me being a writer trying to make sense of something that happened in my life. Prologue is something I did want to bring up too because mm. it's it's painful to read about how the narrator mm. wants to warn the main character who's embarking on her hike to yeah. leave the path where she meets the boy who rapes her. It, it, there is this kind of layering yeah. and I guess as a form of protection. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose that's why I wrote it at that time, Ben, when it was so fresh, I kind of created these imaginary temporal layers. Um, so I wrote that and and I kind of filed away thinking like, okay, I can still write, that's good. But um, I knew I wasn't going to be ready to write Dark Chapter just yet. But so for over the course, for years, you know, as I learned a bit more about my perpetrator, which is not very much admittedly, because he was a he was a minor at the time and also um, a stranger, um, I just realized that, you know, here's somebody that had a very, very different life from me. And could I create a book where it was going to be seen from his perspective and kind of try to capture his very different world and life and capture mine and kind of intertwine them? Um, And so that moving back and forth between the two perspectives was like quite important part of the book, right? And otherwise, if it was just my experience, I probably wouldn't have written it because there's a lot of memoirs out there about rape, right? Written by victims and survivors. And it wouldn't have been creatively as interesting for me to have just written it from the victim's perspective. But but was it also a coping device, kind of giving the rapist a backstory and a family and a human face? I wouldn't say it was about coping, right? Because I didn't start writing the book in earnest until five and a half years after the assault. So I had to kind of go through a whole process of healing and recovering myself and putting my life back together after the rape before I felt like I could reach a point where I could approach it as fiction um, and to actually undertake the massive project of writing a book. Um, 
and I, you know, I hate using the word device anyway, because it almost just makes it sound so kind of deliberate, right, and, and cynical. But like, you know, that that is the heart of the book is the this sort of dialogue, obviously not in a, not a direct dialogue except for in one scene, but this kind of dialogue between two different lives and an understanding that you know, we are so much the product of our race or class or gender or culture and where we're born into this world, right? You know, um, so if, if Vivian, who's the main character, the, the, the victim character, who's very much based on me, had been born 200 years ago, if she'd been born in, you know, Taiwan, if she'd been born, you know, even on the West Coast of America, she would have probably had a very different life experience. Um, than she does in the particular in, in in this particular book, and same thing with Johnny. He's an Irish traveler, and he's fifteen, and he's born into a family which has, you know, it is a bit broken, and it doesn't. It's certainly not on experiencing the good things in lives in life, partly because there's so much kind of hatred and um, anger towards the traveler community um, when he grows up in Ireland. Um, so if, again, if he had been born 200 years ago, uh, you know, he might have had a different experience as well. So I think what I was trying to look at is sort of our fate and our experience of the world, maybe fate isn't the right word, but the things that happen to us in life are so very much the product of, of forces that we have no control over, such as how we're judged and the opportunities that are given to us because of where we're born into our lives, um, social location, I suppose, as well as geographical location. Yeah, and timing, as you say. Well, you yourself um, grew up in New Jersey in the US. Yeah. My parents are from Taiwan. That's very much in the news at the moment with Nancy Pelosi, is it? You studied at university folklore and mythology, and then Irish literature, and you now live in the UK. So you've done your mixing and your moving. Does that allow you to explore perspective too in a particular way? Yeah, I mean, the whole reason I travel, you know, and I mean, obviously don't so much as anymore because I'm a toddler and lockdown has have a toddler and lockdown has happened. But the whole reason I travel and the reason I live and work abroad is to have a different perspective. So, um, so I think it's always been a whole process of exploration right um and from a very young age growing up in suburban new jersey i just wanted to kind of get out i just wanted to explore the world and see all the things there were to see and i still very much kind of have that attitude um and i think writing is another way of doing that right and also in, in a way that has less boundaries right um because as we've probably all experienced in lockdown you know there's the physical act of like going abroad and crossing borders can actually be quite difficult um but you know through writing and through reading you can do that quite easily in some ways incomplicit Winnie, you chose to take the perspective only of victims or, or bystanders, but not the perpetrator. And it's a departure from how you handled perspective in in Dark Chapter. So what was behind that decision? With Complicit, I specifically actually don't even really inhabit any male perspectives at all. I mean, we have one journalist, uh, Tom Gallagher, who was obviously fictional, who was the male journalist that's trying to piece together all the stories of women that have worked with Hugo North. Um, and you certainly have male figures like Hugo and Xander Schultz, the film director, who are major figures in the novel. But yeah, it was a very deliberate choice on my end to only ever really actually see the perspective of women um, in the film industry. So Sarah is the main character and the entire book is written in first person from her perspective. Um, and we gradually learn how much she chooses to reveal to Tom Gallagher about what had happened 10 years ago. 
Um, but then also I've kind of interspersed the transcripts um, where he's interviewing other women in the film industry that had worked with Hugo. Um, so I think for me, that was that was very important because, I mean, so much of complicit and what I'm trying to say is that oftentimes it's it's the men's stories, it's the men's points of view that we see in, in media, um, but more specifically in film, because it's, it's a very male-dominated industry. If you look at the, the percentage of women female of women directors it's very very low it's shockingly low it's like ten percent of um, films um, have, that are made have fem- women directors and so and that's all replicated again in screen screenwriters and um, the decision makers in the film industry so you have what is quite possibly you know the most powerful industry media industry in the world in terms of storytelling and reaching large audiences very much skewed in favor of male storytellers. And that is, there's something quite wrong with that, I find, right? Um, so I very much wanted to show, you know, the perspective of women in the film industry whose voices we don't often hear. Um, and it's obviously not just, it's not just Sarah, it's women, female casting directors, it's, you know, aspiring actresses, um, it's other women throughout the industry who all play a part, but often don't ever get to have their voice heard or their, or their perspective heard and what their take was on Hugo North and what happened during the making of that particular film. Winnie, memory is, is such a critical issue in both books, or at least because the victims in the books recount and sometimes must recount their harrowing experiences sometimes in forensic detail and sometimes repeatedly sometimes in public sometimes under oath with the added pressure of cross-questioning about what we remember how do you work with memory in your writing and 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 in life I have memories from when I was really young like two maybe even younger than two right and and they're very much tied to oftentimes a sense of place but also like sensory detail right so one of my earliest memories was visiting Washington DC um with, with my family and I grew up in New Jersey so it's still like a pretty long drive um and certainly for, for a young kid um and it being really hot and standing outside the Washington Monument and it was I think it was July 4th weekend or something like that and and I'm a very slow eater, um, as some as many of my friends know. And having these like red, white, and blue ice—what we call an ice lolly, or um, in in Britain, or a red, white, and blue popsicle, right—that I was eating, and it was hot, and I was eating it too slowly, right? So the whole thing melted all over my hands, and I just got like very upset, and I cried, right? Because you know, if you're a child and you have like an, a popsicle or an ice cream and it melts over your hands, it's gone, right? So, and so that was a very like that was maybe one of the earliest things I remember, but again, it was, it was tied to being a sense of being out of place, a place that wasn't my home, right. And of visiting a place and also tied to a sense of something being like, you know, temporary evanescent. Like if you don't eat the popsicle quickly enough, it's, it's gone. Right. So, um, so kind of all those things combined, I don't know, um, maybe summarize like the things, the memories that often stick for me, like a sense, a sense of things being temporary, a sense of being out of place or, or exploring a new place. Um, and if I think about the memories, remember, like most of them are, most of them are tied to travel. Right. And so I guess for me, and this was especially pronounced after the rape, after a trauma like rape, like 
I mean, you don't even actually have control of your own memory, right? So I had huge gaps in my memory from the years immediately after the assault, right? I normally have like a very good memory and I just remember things, right? Um, but, you know, my flatmates and I threw parties and I can't remember any of the parties. Like, you know, I just, there's like big chunks that miss that are just gone from your memory because of the trauma. And that that is, you know, that's a, that's a thing that happens in a result of trauma, right? Um, so... There was that, that kind of lack of control over my own memory. But then also, again, having post-traumatic stress disorder, that means you get these intrusive memories from the trauma itself, right? So I had to go through cognitive behavior therapy and um, to try to, I suppose, learn how to control that, right? Um, so again, we see this in movies a lot when people have flashbacks, right? I would be walking down the street and... I would see the sunlight falling through the tree branches in a certain way that reminded me of the time of the actual scene when I was raped. And then suddenly I'd get kind of a flashback to the rape itself. And so it would be like pain, anxiety and panic, right? It would kind of well up in me. So any of these sorts of weird sensory reminders of the trauma itself would then could then trigger an intrusive memory, um, which is very much that, something that happens to victims of trauma, right? So it was a strange thing about like up until 29 being in control of my memory or, or you know, effectively, you know, obviously we all have bad memories, but not, not having these intrusive memories that come in and then suddenly becoming a victim of trauma and then not having control over my memory. Um, so it was this very strange, and on top of that, I became kind of a shell of a person after my trauma. So, you know, the Winnie that was able to travel to all different parts of the world on my own, and that really took thrill in the unknown, that was that Winnie was gone, right? I mean, I no longer had the thrill of the unknown. I was, you know, because I'd just been violently raped and assaulted in the park, right? So I was actually just a lot more scared of things, right? So I had sort of taken pride in being a courageous person and kind of an adventurer in my own way. And then suddenly that was just gone. Right. Um, so there was a huge sense of loss about no longer being that person and no longer being able to live that adventurous life I'd wanted to have for me. Once I was actually able to travel again, which actually happened quite soon. Right. So after the assault, it was, you know, we had the trial scheduled like 11 months after the assault, he actually pleaded guilty. So I didn't have to testify. Um, and then he was sentenced six weeks later. So within almost just a year, more than a year after the assault, like he was, he'd been sentenced and he was in prison. Right. So I was unable to draw a line under that and say like, okay, I did everything I had to do with the criminal justice system. I did everything I'm supposed to do as a victim. Why do I still feel like shit, right? Why am I still really depressed and unable to do these things? Um, so my therapist was like, well, well, do you think you could start trying to reclaim some of those bits of your life before? So for me, like the key thing was like, can I travel again on my own? Um, so within a year and a half after the assault, and now that it's, you know, 14 years on, I'm like, God, I didn't realize I did it that quickly. Within a year and a half after the assault, I went backpacking on my own in Southeast Asia um, for three months. And, and, and it was great. It was a wonderful trip, but it was also about the sense of like needing to create more memories. Like I'd had that one really dominant traumatic one, but reminding myself, okay, my life didn't end then. So I need to keep on traveling. I need to keep on traveling and creating more memories and putting distance between me and that trauma. And whether that's geographic distance, but then also obviously kind of the, the, the more temporal or the more experiential distance of being able to then see 10 other countries um, since the assault and the memories, those happier, better, more exciting memories, um, you know, sort of taking precedence. I wondered if your fiction and, and your recall, like the, the writing of fiction and then mix into mix with your recall of reality and mm. the effect of time on memory. Yeah. Is, does, is that muddle 
or maybe it's not, maybe it's still very delineated for you, but is one better than the other? Is the kind of the blur useful? I mean, what fiction allows you to do is take memories like that and transform them and use them as material in for for the work that you're creating, right? So complicit, there's nothing, actually there are some bits in complicit, like really small details about working in the film industry that have certainly made it right into the book. But, you know, I never worked for anybody like Hugo North or, or Weinstein, right? You know, I've never worked for an abusive male boss, but um, I can kind of try to imagine what that was like, right? You know, um, and I've come up against like men who are bullies for sure. They never, you know, I've never gotten to the point where I've been assaulted by them um, in a work context. But, you know, you can kind of imagine how somebody would end up in a working relationship with a boss like that and feel sort of trapped and feel like you always have to listen to what that person says, um, even if it then starts to kind of blur the boundaries of consent. Um, so, so yeah, I think fiction is a way of um, making sense of all of that. And if that means taking bits of your own memory and kind of modifying it slightly um, to the benefit of the story, then, you know, that's, that's great, right? <laughs> that's what we do as writers, right? Well, to pick up on, on what you were saying, Winnie, about you loving travel, which I know you do, and, I, and the dark chapter protagonist, Vivian, um, also loves travel the quote I remember was at night she often has trouble falling asleep because she's thinking about these maps and the places beyond the borders um borders and boundaries they take on a very significant meaning metaphorically too in the book and geographically because you describe the site of the rape at the meeting point yeah. between forest and field the liminal space hovering like some safe illuminated refuge beyond the trees has has writing then and your books become a kind of refuge for you? Yeah, but they always, writing always has been, right? So from a pretty young age, writing is what I always turn to just to, again, make sense of the world. You know, as a teenager, you know, I was lucky to not have a particularly traumatic childhood, right? So I, but, you know, every teenager has things that they don't like. You know, they go to school and kids are mean to them and that sort of thing. Or, like, your older sister's making fun of you. That, you know, all those sorts of, like, everyday adolescent, um, you know, frustrations, I would just turn to writing to kind of make sense of that or just to kind of, you know, pour my heart out to my to a Word document, right? Um, so, or to, to, a, to a diary. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, but I guess once you, if you're to use the metaphor of borders, like, once you turn away from the world around you into that space of the blank word document or or the blank notebook there is a huge sense of liberation right because you could write whatever the heck you want right and no one's going to necessarily see it well no one will see it right um and it's entirely up to you to decide is this going to be something i publish is it something i'm going to turn into you know more publishable material or is it just there for you meet events and which which is perfectly valid as well so I mean even now I mean the annoying thing is as a professional writer I don't write as much as I'd like to right and that very kind of personal type of writing where I'm just like cracking opening a notebook and and venting um doesn't happen as much um but yeah there is very much that freeing sense of you know I can just pick up a pen and lose myself for an hour and at the end of the hour, I just, I do feel better, right? I do feel like I've explored something, you know, in in my mind, at least. And there's another line in Dark Chapter, um, which is this, maybe she will never locate her moorings again. And I wondered for you, Winnie, if moorings matter to you, you, the author. 
Yeah, I mean, of course. Um, I mean, I think they probably ideally matter for everybody. Um, I don't, I probably have less moorings than your average person, right? Because I, I was just trying to think of if, um, how I would define home. And like, there isn't a specific geographic place that I use to define home that happens to be wherever I am living at the moment, right? You know, um, so, and I have lived in, in a number of different places. Um, so for the moment, it happens to be, you know, this thatch roof cottage in the Wiltshire Somerset border, right? In the English countryside, but it was different two years ago, right? And it was different two and a half years ago because I, you know, so, because I moved quite a lot um, in 2019 when I found out I was pregnant, right? Now that I've got a family of my own or at least have a partner and a kid, I do have a quite different sense of mooring than I did when I was single, which I was for most of my adulthood prior to this. So um, I guess for me, uh, mooring, especially even when I was single, was very much about, you know, where I was able to live the life and follow the interests that I wanted, right? Which primarily meant travel, but then also living in the middle of London, it meant culture, it meant, you know, being able to see art house cinema and like go to the theater and go to museums, right? Um, and so that was kind of my mooring was just being in a place where I was able to do those things. Um, and that's still, I mean, that changed. I didn't always live in London. So I lived in Qatar um, in Doha for a few years and I was very different place that doesn't have necessarily art house cinema or theater or culture in the same way. Um, so there I probably, well, I actually just kind of threw myself into work, which was in the film industry, but I made friends. And like, so there was a very different kind of sense of mooring. I did feel fairly unmoored when I was living in Qatar and probably even more so when I was living in Singapore for six months after that. Um, but so it was always about trying to make sure that I was able to continue pursuing those interests of mine, right? Um, so in Singapore, probably felt like I didn't quite belong or figure out how to live in that city, but at least I could travel a lot, right? You know, at least I could go to the other side of the island and, you know, walk through a tropical forest, right? So um, being in a place that allows you to kind of still explore your interests, um, whether that's about geographical travel or about storytelling and, and literature, I mean, I think that's kind of my biggest sense of mooring, I suppose. But a sense of belonging, like, do you, do you get mm -hmm. that when you go back to the U.S.? at all i mean it's so weird i was thinking because i was listening to some of your earlier podcasts and I, I guess most people would define home as where they feel like they belong but i've actually never felt like i've belonged like anywhere right and is there a sense of loss that comes with that not really i mean although i you know i meet other people who can definitely say this is my home and i'm like oh yeah that must be nice you know to say like but like you know i can't really point to a, a geographic place and say like this is where i belong because you know, I grew up in suburban New Jersey as a Taiwanese American and was very conscious of being other, right, you know, in that space, because it was a, it was a white dominant society. Uh, I was very conscious of that as a kid, um, that my family stuck out. And then my family moved to California, where ostensibly, obviously, they fit in a lot more because there's a much bigger kind of Asian American population or Asian population there. But I'm not from California, right? I, I go to California, I still find it weird that you have to drive so much, right? And I tried to capture some of that in complicit in terms of like the East Coaster that gets temporarily transplanted to California. Um, and then I, when I go back to the States, I'm like, oh, everyone's so American and they, they act in such an American way because I've been living, you know, abroad for 20 years. Um, so I don't really ever feel like I belong anywhere. Right. And there's for me, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. I guess it means I'm versatile. Right. And I guess it means that um, I, I don't have a particular homesickness for any specific geographic place. I mean, yeah, I miss London since I live in the countryside now, but 
I can always just get on the train and go to London, right? You know, um, and as somebody who travels a lot, like, you know, I miss Scotland. I like the Scottish Highlands, but that's not my home. I've never, you know, I've been there probably about like 15, 20 times, but um, there's a knowledge I can, you know, get on the train and go up there if I want, right? So for me, homesickness doesn't really exist. Um, there's always going to be places I'd like to go back to, right? Um, but uh, there's also always a lot more places that I haven't seen or explored yet. Well, the protagonists in both books are Asian American women, yeah. as you call them, and, and yeah. you write the race element into the book, and yeah. you've used the words such as oriental and mm. aesthetic in your references of kind of other people's perceptions of those two women. Yeah. It, it, that's something that you live with still? Is that why it's still going into the books? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've, I'm writing my third book now. And again, all, almost all the characters are Asian American, right? And I think some of that is a political choice because I don't, I don't read that many books or see that many works of, you know, publicly distributed art, right? Um, whether that means film or TV. Um, where Asian Americans are the main character, right? Um, and I, I reference that a bit in probably in both books that like, you know, you might see like a, an Asian best friend, right? Or you might see like uh, the, the stereotypical Asian doctor in a TV show. And that is obviously changing now because I think um, they're becoming more diverse, conscious um, in casting in Hollywood. But um, but yeah, I was, you know, I never really saw that many things where the main character was somebody that that's what I had my experience, right? And then even if you do see it, uh, you know, how often do you see an Asian American female producer, you know, as the main character or an Asian American woman who likes to travel in Europe, you know, um, and that's certainly been my life, you know, all these sorts of things, but I've never seen it reflected in books. So I kind of, for me, it's quite important to have that character be somebody who is one that you don't necessarily encounter in books and yet is a very real one or can be a very real one because so much of it is kind of based on my own experience. Um, yeah. And can you tell us now a bit more about novel number three? Um, I mean, it won't be out for probably at least another two years, but I mean, it is about a road trip that takes place across America, right? And some of that was, because um, I've always wanted to go on the great American road trip. I was an American and it's never happened. And then, I, and then I'm like, how, if I write a novel about an American road trip, I'm going to have to do one as research. So I did that last autumn, right? So me and my partner and our toddler flew to Chicago and we hired a car, a SUV, and then we drove, we did a three-week trip um, using Route 66 to get to California to visit my parents, right? So I, we went to all those sorts of what people might call flyover states, but the states that you often don't see um, in film and TV unless it's they're depicted a certain way. So, you know, Illinois, Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas, um, New Mexico, Arizona, right? And so, the, you know, and it was, America does have an incredible landscape, especially out West in a certain way. Um, and it is very much a different sense of scale compared to growing up on the East Coast of America or compared to living in, you know, the English countryside. Um, and I think it's quite hard to understand to really grasp what like the American attitude and the American history is about until you're actually confronted with like the vastness of those landscapes. Um, so yeah, so I did that research, which was great. I mean, it basically was just like a road trip that we did. Right. <laughs> so now I'm kind of using that for the novel, which is about, um, well, I don't want to talk too much about it, but it's about four characters that don't necessarily get along that are forced to do this road trip, um, across America, um, to see their, 
parents who lives on the other side, <laughs> who lives in California. Um, so yeah, um, and so that's been really interesting to kind of obviously take fictional characters and and storylines, but then kind of implant them on actual landscapes I've been to and actual places I've been to. Life is art again, Winnie. You co-founded the Clear Lines Festival with a mission to address sexual assault and consent through the arts. Can you tell us more about that and how you want it to develop? Sure. I mean, I uh, founded that in 2015, so that's like seven years ago. Um, and, and I think it just kind of came, came out of a few different places. Like one was um, up until then, I'd been quite... Um, inward looking and I suppose quiet about my own experience of rape um not personally because I did I was quite open in terms of telling friends about it but just obviously I wasn't speaking publicly about it um and so in 2013 I started 2014 really I started writing short articles about my experience and you know the way rape is perceived in society um for the Huffington Post um so I guess that was maybe the beginnings of my um journey as an activist um and then uh and then just as somebody who obviously cared about the subject matter. I was just very conscious of how rape and sexual assaults and sexual violence are portrayed in um, art, right? Um, so I'd be, I would just kind of have my radar up every time there was anything about rape or sexual violence in in movies or in theater, um, literature, or what however you name it. Um, so I started to become aware that there was a lot of really good art being created by survivors themselves. And that could be theater, it could be stand-up comedy, visual art, poetry, literature. Um, at the time, I was writing my own novel. Um, and then I think I did find Running Dark Chapter, um, I mean, it was quite challenging because of the emotions and the real-life experience that was involved, right? So, and all, because of the fact that it was such, writing is such a solitary activity. So I'd go and, you know, spend an hour writing about the worst period of my life right and then I wouldn't there wasn't like a team or like an office you know or, or like office colleagues I could speak to right so I wanted to have a kind of a more collaborative space where we could see that sort of art being created by survivors and where we could almost create and have a place for the audiences to come and engage with it and then have a dialogue about it afterwards because again I knew there were you know there's so many people out there that have experienced rape and sexual assault they probably do actually want to engage or some of them feel need to engage with the truth of those experiences as seen in art. Um, but at the time, this is obviously pre-Me Too, you weren't seeing theater, you know, the West End or, or even other theaters weren't really going to show anything about that issue. It's obviously changed a lot now, right? Um, so so I created um, Clear Lines and we just had like four days of programming. So it was like a theater night, it was film night, it was, um, uh, you know, it was like a literature um, night, a spoken word, and it was kind of a place for all these different kinds of experiences to be seen through art. And we would always have a, a Q&A with the artist afterwards, just to kind of ask about sort of how they went about transforming kind of their personal experience into art. Um, and it was it was really kind of impromptu in the sense that I came up with the idea and like three and a half months later, we had the festival and we crowdfunded and, and it was a great space. Um, and we had another festival in 2017, um, and then we ended up kind of turning it into more a series of events that would happen in London and then COVID happened. So then we had some online events. Um, and the thing is now I'm really busy. So, and, and I've never actually had proper funding to run the festival or to, to run what Clear Lines is. So I don't really know what's going to happen to it. If someone wanted to give me money to turn that into something a little more um, long standing, that would be great. I you know I can run things on really tight budget as well. 
I'm happy to hand over the reins to someone as well, um, someone who's passionate. So it's kind of, it, you know, we still exist and we do still have events when I have the time um, to run them. But yeah, I mean, if I think there is still a future for Clear Lines, if, if we want that to happen, um, it's just a way of knowing that there's the audiences out there and that art is still being created around this issue, which unfortunately continues to be an issue that affects a lot of women and men around the world. Well, that's a call out for some funding, I think, um, to the Wandering Book Collector. Listen. Yeah, or help, you know, if people want to come on board, I'm more than happy <laughs> to have other people come on board. Good luck with that, Winnie, and thank you very much for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Yeah, thank you. And my thanks to the supporter of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent. Goodbye.